be a Florida thing. Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis, and this is MJ Network. MJ Network, in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce, and Dr. George Cavuto is here. And we're going to talk about something that people don't do a lot of, and that's the type of questions to increase your challenge. Questions are an important part of your classroom discourse and can be used for a wide range of purposes as set out below. Reflect on the way in which you ask questions to ensure you not just don't say, what is it about, how, try to dig deeper. So you might have to ask questions such as probing questions, focus, challenging, stretching questions, and a whole bunch more. And Dr. Cavuto is here, and how are you today? I am so ready. I hope. Hey, good morning, friends. Thank you. Uh, I'm doing well, and uh, thank you uh, for yet uh, again inviting me to be on your wonderful show. It's always a pleasure. Well, here is the question that, that bothers me. It's very important for teachers to ask questions. And I've been asking different people questions because I've been trying to do some research. Basically what's been happening is that teachers are just reading a story and telling them to go into the questions in their seat. That doesn't do any mm-hmm. good. So why is it important to investigate teacher questioning? And I looked up how many questions should a teacher ask in grades K to 12 on an average. I mean, I used to ask questions, and I used to make them ask me questions. So how do you work that? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good question, no pun intended. Uh, the, the point being, Fran, um, I'm sure some of the things that you researched, um, I, I've also uh, uh, taken a look at as in preparation for our interview this morning. Uh, some studies show that teachers on average ask between 400 and 700 questions a day. Wow. Uh, which is yeah, isn't that incredible? Obviously, that that's, that's an average. Um, and again, that's from K through 12. Um, some some will ask maybe 300, some will ask maybe 500. But they they again, on average, it seems to be between four and 700 questions. So teacher questioning behavior is a critically important part of teaching. Now, um, let me just ask you, if I may, do you remember sure. taking a course? On how to take a, taking a course in your, your many degrees that you've managed to earn, have you ever taken a course on how to ask good questions? No, I sort of learned it from you when I took your first <laughs> class. Well, I sort they, of they, learned they, how to ask questions, and then actually, over the years when I started to do the reviews and stuff and interviews, yes. I began yes. to say, "What can I ask an author that no one else would ask? How could I right. dig deeper?" And I remember um, Frank Smith and understanding mm-hmm. reading. And I remember yep. deep structure. I remember what you taught me. And I'm saying, yes. how can I ask questions that 
children are going to be more, you know, better readers and independent readers. And then I taught yeah. a sixth grade class. So I'll never forget it. And they asked me questions. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's when I got really smart because they were an IGC gifted class. And they did. if I did a lesson, I had to be really ready because they asked me questions about what I, what they read. They wanted to make sure I knew it. So I guess mm-hmm. I got better at it. But the only thing my reading masters, no one gave a class in how to ask questions. And yeah. you didn't mind if we asked questions or answered them, but there were some professors that didn't know the answers to the questions. Yeah, well, that, that, that's a little embarrassing. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I used to start my uh, – <clears throat> right now I'm no longer in uh, academia. Uh, the college that I taught for for 28 years uh, is no longer in existence. But in any case, uh, but the St. John's and uh, Leeming College, mm-hmm. uh, where I had you as wonderful students, are still around. But uh, be, that, be that as it may, um, my, my point is that uh, I used to always start my classes before I even give out the syllabus by telling my students very sincerely and very uh, uh, passionately that classrooms should be risk-free environments, which means that students should be free to ask anything they want. There's no such mm-hmm. thing as a stupid question. And I said, you might have heard that before, but I really mean it. By the way, that, that's, not, that, that, that's a quote from Brian Camborn, the, the Aussie. That, that, that's not Cavuto. But, um, yes, you are absolutely correct. The class that uh, uh, I was privileged to have you as a, uh, one of my star students, if not the star student, was the Literacy Acquisition K-12 through at Lehman College. And there's a strand in that course. In fact, it's a... It's a small, not small, but it's it's only a, mm. one of the pieces of a very big puzzle, so we can't give it the same attention you would give it in a complete course. But I really do think that teachers, teachers, teachers being uh, teachers in preparation, uh, should be required to take the course in in questioning. It's that important, and we're going to talk about um, two models of questioning today, if you'd like. Yeah. They they don't because I mean I even listen to parents as we're walking and people that um, give books to our kids that are talking in the street with their parents and a lot of times they're asking questions and nobody's answering them and yeah. that 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 the one thing I I told my students I said you could ask me anything I said but just make sure that you know it's it's respect they ask any questions that they wanted. But they, but yeah. I already knew the answers before, because so I had I had to anticipate yeah. what they were going to ask. But the right. hardest thing right. is to get little first graders to ans- ask a question. A lot of teachers, yeah. you know, they, the kids get afraid, and they're afraid to say, "I don't understand," or "Can you explain that?" or "That question, what does that mean?" They don't even right. ask to have something clarified, even upper grade. So how do you stop that? That's even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think the, something you mentioned before is uh, kind of sticking in my head, and that, that is that um, you you also, in your, your journey that is still continuing uh, and continuing quite nicely, is that you encourage students to ask questions themselves during your instruction uh, when you were in the classroom. And um, there's, there's actually a name for that technique. It's called reciprocal questioning, where the teacher might ask questions, but then the students, uh, they get a turn to ask questions about the same topic. Let's say they were discussing a novel, okay? And today uh, I thought perhaps we'd, we'd 
touch a little bit on one of my uh, favorite favorite classic novels of Mice and Men. Uh, but it's a, mm-hmm. they're a very short, almost a novel as as you well know, five chapters. But um, they, they, there's a lot of there's a lot of meat in the, of Mice and Men if you if you question well. But um, uh, I also want to mention in response to your your query, and that is that what, one thing we have to remember is that sometimes if we want to just find out if the students understood the facts of that which they've read, sometimes mm-hmm. questions aren't the best way to do it. There's something called retelling, which is simply saying to the youngsters, okay, you read pages 1 through 10, 1 through 15, whatever grade, okay? Right? Mm-hmm. Who can tell me about what you've read? And by retelling, by having them retell, typically what students will do is they will retell the the literal information, the factual information, okay? Now, Mm -hmm. let's say when you do that, there there are positive responses from the class. I can't imagine them all being that shy. So if if you're not getting a lot of information from them, by the way, students are not used to retelling. Why? Because teachers will typically ask questions, okay? Or they go to your seats and answer these questions on uh, on your your laptops or whatever. Uh, but um, rarely do the teachers say, "Okay, who can, who can, can you just tell me about that which you've read?" Retelling is very powerful. In fact, it, it allows you to get the the the, the easiest aspect of uh, cognition in terms of questioning, uh, the literal level out of the way, if, in fact, they, they're able to retell. If they're not able to retell, why well, then you have to start asking the literals yourself, and you might find out that, you know what, they really didn't even get this at the literal level, so I have to go over it with them. So um, you, might have, you might even find out if they read it or not also. Well, well uh, exactly, exactly. In fact, in, in the upper, in the, whatever, middle school, upper grades, and you mm-hmm. do their assignments, they read chapters one through uh, three for homework, and they, they come in and you ask them to do a retelling, and you don't get many hands up. You're absolutely right. They just may not have done it at all. Um, I'm finding it kind of interesting. Uh, I have a, um, a granddaughter, uh, Angela, mm-hmm. and Angela is a voracious reader and a, a superb writer. In fact, I bought her a T-shirt for Christmas last year that said "Future Best-Selling Author," and she she's just unbelievable. But she she's not enjoying English as much as she had been in the other lower grades, in like mm. seventh, eighth grade. And she says, "Poppy," she said, um, "I say," and she's a little bit she's not really shy, but I'll, but she's very they're, they're very. Um, thank goodness, my grandchildren have learned to be uh, uh, kind and. Uh, uh, not not too uh, judgmental, but so probably uh, the teacher reads those books to us. I'm, I'm not used to that. We mm-hmm. you know, we stopped we stopped doing that a long time ago. She said, and not only does she read the books to us, but then she doesn't. She might ask us questions, or she might give us a um, a, a paper with questions, but she doesn't allow us to do any writing about that which we've read. That that's what I love about reading that you get to to write about it. Now, Fran, we know that I was going to say, I said, oh, that's unfortunate, Angie. I said, mate, do you do something yourself? So, well, yeah, Poppy, you know, I, I write all the time. In fact, I write in all kinds of different genres. I'm starting to, to go outside the box and do a little science fiction writing, right? Uh, and this is an 11-year-old, Fran, okay? And um, 
the, the point is she has to do this on her own. That, that's ridiculous. The, the four language arts, reading, writing, listening, and speaking, they should be totally integrated in all classes. In an English class, that's, that's unforgivable if that's not being done. Then they're not. I could tell you that now. Uh, my my friend's daughter goes to private school, and the teacher reads the book. And I said, and she said, didn't they give her a paper? She's I've seen what the, what the teacher gives, some kind of thought paper based on the, the what they read, you know, a chapter or yeah. two. I said, but do you understand what you read? No, because if there are children in the class with learning disabilities in a Catholic school, they're not going to do anything. They just expect yeah. them to know, and that and that's really yeah. sad. I know. I know when I taught sixth grade, and then I think the hardest grade I ever taught was when I was shell-shocked and they gave me first grade. I go, holy God, that was the day of school. The first day of school, they put me <laughs> yeah. in first grade. I go, like, how do you do this? Those, I, my heart still goes out to those poor first graders because I talked to them like they were 12. Yeah. I said, okay, this is it. You're going to answer the questions. You're going to know what you're going to do. And by the end of the day, you're going to be able to read a whole book, and they did. Right. I, I don't know. It was they, they were like, holy goodness, who is they? they I said, they sucked me from sixth grade to first grade. I, I don't know how to talk to you, whatever. They did very well. Yeah. They're probably the best yeah, well, thing that ever happened to them. So there sure, were two programs. One I couldn't find, and the other one I have in front of me, and that is Bloom's Taxonomy and Herber's Three Levels Hierarchy. I can't find enough on higher, that, that particular one. They're not giving any information yeah. out on that. Yes, that I understand, friend. In fact, when I used to give uh, this as a uh, a uh, PowerPoint presentation in the course we talked about before that you took with me, uh, and the yeah. students had to do a PowerPoint. For, well, they each got different topics, but the ones who got the, the one who got the one on uh, questioning, they had to talk about Bloom's taxonomy and Herber's um, three level model, and they always had difficulty finding Herber's three level level model. Yeah, it's not nearly a, it's not nearly as popular as Bloom's. But if we could talk about the two of them quickly, uh, yeah. Herber, I'm sorry, Bloom, Bloom's taxonomy, uh, and taxonomy because it's a, it's a hierarchy, as is Herber's. And Bloom's, uh, he's revised it a few times, but let's just go very quickly. His, his Bloom's levels, starting from the bottom and going higher, are solid, starting with knowledge, then comprehension, then analysis, then synthesis, then evaluation, and then application. Those are Bloom's levels, and he's changed them over the years, so you might have something in front of you that looks a little bit different, but it's basically the same thing. In fact, that, that first level knowledge was actually a misnomer because you, you don't, you have knowledge, the knowledge level of comprehension is basically the literal information, the factual information, and we both know you can answer factual questions and not understand the darn thing. Okay, uh, if I may uh, play with you a little bit early in the morning, it's not that early, but if I said the problem was downhole heave compensators is that excessive torque tends to damage the underreamers. Okay, the problem with downhole heave compensators is that excessive torque tends to damage the mm. underreamers. What is excessive torque damage, friend? I can't hear. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, yeah. That's right. I'm sorry you said you're having some uh, little hearing issue. Uh, anyway, the, the last word is underreamers. So you can use yeah. the students can basically just parse the sentence by looking looking at it grammatically. 
So mm. you don't, when you answer a literal, if I said, the frasm wants a wene, who wants a wene? The frasm. You can make up nonsense and still answer questions. Mm-hmm. So when students answer your literal questions, your factual questions, you have no idea if they're really understanding. All they're really doing is spitting back factual information. Now, the next, the, so that's the knowledge level, which I, I think um, uh, Bloom changed the name to, uh, uh, I, I don't know, uh, factual or something. But the second mm-hmm. level is comprehension. And comprehen- comprehension is uh, where you get involved in making inferences, drawing conclusions. Now, that's your reading beyond what, what's on the page and understanding and understanding the nuances. So that, that, that's, really a, uh, that, that's really what we want to say. Then there's analysis where you analyze the information. You might um, uh, look very carefully at certain words mm. you've been using. Synthesizing means, well, let me look at what's going on uh, here and um, see if I can relate it to something that happened in another book I read because I could see George and Lenny in this book of Vice and Men. I could see they have an interesting relationship. And that's something like I, I remember reading in whatever, okay, um, in, in another book. And I, I, that probably would be an interesting essay to write. Then there's evaluation. Probably evaluation is a lot of times you make evaluation just an opinion. What do you think about that? That's okay. We, we, want, we want to hear what they think about it. But it's also, you could, you could also have students learn to do an evaluation, which is a little bit more involved than just what do you think. But then lastly, application. Well, what, what, are the, what is the basic theme of that which you've read this novel? Let's, again, let's use a mice and What's the theme of this novel? How could you apply that to your own life? Do you know any, anyone who has a relationship like George and Lenny had in this book? Do you have a relationship with anyone like George and Lenny? Discuss that. Now, once you're at that level, you're really, you're really exactly what we want students to be, that which we, that we want students to be at that kind of level where they're taking it and they're relating that which they've read to their own life. Because as we both know, friends, if there's any purpose for reading novels, plays, um, I'm not talking about informational text so much, but the, 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 the fiction, if there's any re- re- reason for reading fiction, it's to change your life. It's to inform your life. It's to mm. make you a better human being. And, and, and so that, that, that's Bloom's taxonomy. Now, if I may, very quickly, the problem that I have with Bloom's taxonomy is I know a lot of, a lot of professors, and I've seen this in undergraduate classes that I've observed, that they get so hung up on, oh, wait a minute, is that, an, is that a comprehension? Oh, no, it's a synthesis question. Oh, no, it's a, who cares? It says, it says that we don't want them to identify the type. We just want the teacher to be able to ask those kinds of questions so we get, we, we if I may use the word, we scaffold. We scaffold the student's cognitive thinking, yes? Uh, I, I agree. You know, it's funny because I ask questions of authors and I ask questions yeah. of other people. And the one mm-hmm. thing that... I found that when I was observing teachers and asking teachers questions is this. When they ask a question, if a child has, like, you know, you will say, how does your life compare to that of the person in the book? When they tell them they disagree, they turn them off. They have yeah. to give you give them a chance to express it. Now, where in the story did you find that? 
Can you go back to the story and find it in, in the chapter? Can you tell me what you read that leads you to believe that? And then usually the teacher says, I can't be bothered. They do, yeah, that gets what? me. Because that will turn yeah, yeah. off children to ask questions or even answering them. Because sometimes your answer might be right. It might disagree with what the teacher's addition says, which is too many of them are sticking to that. They don't go yeah. beyond what the teacher's addition says. And that, that's what works, works, worries me. Yeah. Well, again, teacher's additions have become kind of rubber rubber crutches of sorts, if I may. Yeah. Because they're useful in that they usually follow Bloom's taxonomy to a certain extent or Herber's in terms of these different levels of cognition. So they, they, allow, they, they give teachers a model to follow to ask their own questions. But bottom line is that teachers... If they use it as a model, that's fine. There should come a point where they don't need to have those questions prepared for mm-hmm. them. They should be able to do them themselves. And I've heard you interview best-selling authors about their books. Okay, I've taken the liberty of listening to more than a few. And okay. You, and you get in-depth with these authors. And what I, what I was thinking about today, and I think I touched with you briefly when I said this is what I'd like to do um on April 13th, is talk about your own questioning behavior. In other words, when you sit down to discuss a novel with an author, you, you know, my guess is you don't consciously say, well, I'm going to ask these kinds of literal questions, these kinds of interpretive, these kinds of applied. Uh, in fact, because the novels that I'm talking about are basically a novel for adults, you, you almost have, are able to skip the literal, and you jump right mm-hmm. to the, the the comprehension analysis synthesis evaluation. Am I correct? You are correct, and you know what cracks me up? So I give them the questions beforehand because okay. some of the authors will complain that even though the book just came out, they wrote it three years ago last Wednesday. So by giving them the questions, they have to go back to the to the text to make sure that when I ask the question. They have the answer. Yes, well, one of the days, not this week, last week, one of the authors said, could you answer that for me? I go like, okay. Uh, and I read them I read them way in advance. Yeah, a lot of them, you know, literal comprehension is not going to do anything. And the, the no. reason why they like coming on your right on my show is because I'm not going to ask you what the book is about. I don't care why you wrote it. It might be, I might say, how did you set the scene in the prologue? Why did you decide to do that? How does that lead mm-hmm. to what happens next? It just, right. and it takes me a while. It doesn't take five minutes. It, yeah. it takes me a while because I have to actually read into what the author might be saying. Now, I'm reading one right now, and it's very frightening because it's a true story about, um, it takes place in a foreign country where children are kidnapped and put in mental institutions. Yeah, so my, my, my you know, question is what research did she do and how do, how, do, how do parents not watch with their children? Why aren't parents more vigilant or something like that as soon as I come up with it? So have there been studies on effective teacher questioning and what professional development workshops can teachers learn? How can they get better at questioning? Well, um the answer to your question, very simply, is yes, there have been research studies. And the second 
uh, part of your question was uh, the, the research basically has been where teachers are, it's a pre and post um, kind of a model, where teachers, the teacher questioning behavior is looked at um, a priori, before anything is done. And basically what it's found is precisely that which we said, that teachers tend to, when they're observed, tend to ask a majority of literal or factual questions. Mm. Now, of course, this is a generalization. But again, the majority of teachers ask by far a majority of literal questions. So in a few, several of the studies I read, they took these teachers that were observed and they did professional development workshops on different levels of questioning, a la Bloom's taxonomy or a la Herbert's taxonomy, which we can mm. talk about in supplements as you'd like. And then after doing something, now again, I, have, I, I they describe the workshops, but I don't, you know, you've been to professional development, friends. Sometimes it's incredibly good. Sometimes you might as well go and have an increment instead, you know. Um, mm-hmm. We both know it depends upon who's doing the the workshop, right? And uh, that's right. But again, since I don't know the quality of the workshops, uh, but I have to assume from the descriptions that they the, the on paper at least they the the teachers receive some good uh, information about how to uh, how to ask better questions, how to ask higher level questions, uh, and um, even have practice during the workshops doing it. They were doing it in cooperative, collaborative groups. And then maybe six months later, after maybe having, let's say, once a month workshops, six workshops, they were they were um, uh, observed again in their classrooms. And, Fran, I'm sorry to say, they still ask a majority of little questions. And, and I, I think what I'm going to say in terms of what, what conclusion do I draw it, my, the conclusion that I draw, Fran, is that, and again, I, I don't want to uh, uh, in any way, shape, or form, form uh, malign teachers because I've worked with so many who are just outstanding. But the, I think I think the reason why they didn't find the difference is it takes a while. It takes a while to become a good questioner. It's mm-hmm. not going to happen after six workshops. In fact, in my opinion, Every undergraduate class in education that is preparing students to become teachers should have a strand in questioning behavior. Every single I, I, I agree, and they don't. Right? As a matter of they, fact, they, growing they, up in the sixth grade, I was told by my teacher, because my mother was preacher president, my aunt was a teacher in the school, and she looked at me and she said, don't answer any questions and be quiet. And <laughs> that's a hard thing for this person I, when right. I came into junior high school, and I was getting all A's, especially in reading and English, and my mom said to the teacher, my homeroom teacher, he says, I don't know who she is, give me a picture of her. Mm-hmm. He literally had no idea who I was because I was always told, don't speak, don't ask questions, and don't answer them. Basically, teachers uh, sort of like don't want to be bothered. Okay, I'll use the teacher's edition, it makes it easier and I can get done. Faster, mm-hmm. and you're right. They need to yeah. they need to learn. And six week classes are not. So I know that you wrote you published with McGraw Hill, differentiated yes. questioning, 
as a major component. How does how is that different from everything else? And definitely, I learned a lot from that too. Thank you, friend. Basically, I'll give you a tiny bit of background without being okay. too verbose, which I tend to be. I'm sorry, but I was a a, a high school, nine through twelve, reading specialist in a in a large district here in Long Island, in Brentwood. Very diverse population, okay, very culturally diverse, uh, and. Um, Basically, I was lucky because I was the first reading consultant slash specialist that the district ever hired at that secondary level. The thing the principal did when he hired me was he put his arm around me and said, George, we got great reviews from the junior high where you had been a reading teacher, English teacher, and so we're thrilled to have you aboard. And I said, well, thank you, David. I said, I'm, I, I can't believe you're giving me this, this feedback so quickly. So I'm hired, you're hired. He said, I just have one question. I said, well, sure, what is that? Can you tell me exactly what a reading specialist does? Mm. So, well, a reading specialist, reading consultant. Well, you know what, friend? It was such a wonderful question because I then had, I then spent um, how about 16 years developing my, my job title. I was able to do so many different things. And one of the things I did was, the English, the English um, department head was so smart uh, and and so secure that she said, George, I want you to come into some of the classes when I observe and be my co-observer, because I'm gonna I observe their pedagogy and their and mm. she's a brilliant woman, incredibly well-read friend like yourself, and and I said, Gilda, I, I, teachers don't like really being observed by one person, let alone two. They're like, George, you're not intimidating. They like you, so I did. And I found, and then after the, the the first class we did together, we chatted, and I said, okay, give me your feedback. I said, Gilda, I said, I, I, I know what they need. This, let's take uh, Mary Jane. Mary Jane's first question was to the class that they were reading, they were reading a novel. First question was, what would you have done if you were the teacher in that cafeteria and that happened? What would you have done? And I said, what Mary Jane was doing is she was jumping to the applied level. And by the way, she was shocked when nobody put their hand up because she didn't even know at that point, number one, like you said, if they did the rating. Number two, if they did it, she didn't know if she, they even got it on the factual level. So long story short, Bram, what I did was I took the novels that were required of the, um, let's call it the average track students and the the honors track uh, regions, honors track students, and I devised, I wrote three-level manuals for them based upon Herbert's model, mm. Harold Herbert. Herbert took Bloom's taxonomy and made it so easy. Herbert had three levels, friend, three levels, literal, interpretive, and applied. And it's so easy because here's the way to remember it. The answers to literal questions are on the lines. They're right there for you. All right? Mm. You can just, all right? So literal question is the lowest level. Second level in Herb's hierarchy is interpretive. The answers to interpretive questions are between the lines. Mm. Ah, so they're not right there. You have to make inferences, draw conclusions. Okay? And the last level, applied, the answers to applied levels are beyond the lines. 
or beyond the line. Uh, for instance, in Mice and Men, if I were to ask, let's say, after we completed the novel, if I were to ask, there's a biblical um, uh, uh, verse that, that reads, Am I my brother's keeper? What does this mean, and how do you think it relates to the novel of Mice and Men? Okay? Uh, that's a, and, yeah. Without patting myself on the back, that's a very good question, you see? And, and very difficult to answer, am I correct? Yeah, it is. Yeah. But most and, most but again, people just tr- turn off when they're forced to think past what's on the page. That's the right. problem. And, and you, you I, ask and think, questions that make you think, and then you right. say, well, I don't want to do that. And a lot of teachers don't know the answers to that question, nor would they even yes. be bothered to find out. That's what's really yes. bad. Yes. So what what I did in, in not in short, so I never do anything in short. But uh, what I did we know. Was I, I wrote I wrote three level three. I wrote guides for each novel in their curriculum. So they had Catcher in the Rye, that of my command, they had the Pearl, they had Call of the Wild, and I wrote one at a time. It took me a couple of months to do each one, and then I gave these not these my three level models to the teachers. Now again. Gilder and I knew that that was good news and bad news. Number one, I was providing them with an incredible mm, crutch, okay? But we both knew that they needed something, and we both knew that there was going to be a caveat. They were going to get these models to help them develop their questioning techniques. But as Gilder said to me, George, Mm. once they get these models from you, and I go in and observe them, I'm going to expect them to show me how they're developing them their own questioning techniques and not just asking literal questions. Moving to the interpretive and the applied on books that you haven't written on, written the guides for. So long story short, the head of the English department in the other high school, uh, this is uh, Brentwood Two High School, called me and said, Kavuto, I love those guides. I love to have the guides for my teachers. He said, Tom, they're yours. I'll send them over. And mm-hmm. I, was, I was very, very uh, uh, pleased that uh, that and complimented. And uh, it's funny, he had karma, friend. Um, two months after that mm-hmm. happened, he called me and said, George, my teachers are using the manuals. They love it. I'm watching mm-hmm. them as is Gilda. I see the questioning techniques are improving. They're improving. They're moving beyond the factual. Um, George, i got to pay you back. I said, Tom, don't be silly. You already paid me back. You give me a huge compliment. He said, no, no, no. I, I know an editor at McGraw Hill. I know they'd love to publish this. I said, no, it's Tom. They're manually. George, I'm going to give you a name. Long story short, Gilda, I, I met with this gentleman for two hours, and they ended up publishing. But they took my manuals, and guess what they made them into? They, you remember the old SRA kits? The SRA kits, they, were, they, had, like, they had blue, yellow, red. You had mm-hmm. color cards, right? They they yep. took my they took my manuals and they again this is only a question of format but I I, I kind of thought oh my goodness they they made literal questions on red uh, red print on red cards uh, uh, yeah and the interpretive blue and the yeah but they, they this is this is all a marketing technique but but again it didn't it wasn't in any way I'm not too big on compromising but it didn't in any way. Uh, uh, make make that which I did uh, uh, less valuable. The only thing it did was it made it more expensive, which is good for them. 
And these these boxes that contained all these cards mm. were quite heavy. Uh, but anyway, so I did that, and uh, they uh, they didn't make me a rich man, but they uh, they were well used. I went to different conferences, which I always did as an academic, and I was pleased to see when I went to the McGraw Hill table that there were my my kits uh, on these uh, these levels of questions. And I do hope those teachers use them well, and they use them to model their own questioning strategies. Um, uh, so that that that's that's what happened with uh, uh, with my uh, uh, well unintended commercialization of the idea. But to this day, friends, when I teach and I uh, I'm not on faculty anymore, I'm emeritus, but I am invited mm-hmm. to uh, some colleges, my former students usually, to give a talk, to give a, a sample lecture. Um, I'm very much cognizant of the questions I ask. And, in fact, when students can't answer a question that I ask, okay, based upon something we've already discussed, my my first thought is, you know what, I I probably didn't ask the, the right question or I mm-hmm. asked the wrong level of question. I asked, instead of, I jumped to the applied, as Mary Jane did, I jumped to the applied without first getting the literal and the interpretive in place. Literal on the line. Interpretive between the lines. Applied beyond the lines. That's why I like Herbert's model, friend. It's so simple. Well, I, I know from talking to the teachers from my school, I was invited back to come and help, but with this pandemic, I'm afraid to go into a school. And yeah, I really didn't want I to would. get sick, and I said I would do it on Zoom. But I think mm-hmm. it's too late. They have a new principal, thank God. But they have what's called reading coaches, reading specialists, and reading analysts, whatever, three of them. And I said to someone, what do they do? They mm-hmm. come in and push in. I said, could you explain what that means? Well, they come in and they walk around and see what's happening. I said, but do they get up and model? Do they go right. up and do they watch you and see how they can, you can improve what you're doing? I think they're just yeah. there to take up space, to be very honest. Yeah. That's what yeah. bothers me. Now, my yeah. next question, before I forget, on Wednesday next week, New York Times author John Gilstrap, White Smoke. On the 20th, Charles Salzburg, Man on the Run. On the 25th, I am so honored, Robert Dagoni is a, is a New York Times author. He's coming on at 12 mm-hmm. o'clock, Her yeah, Deadly yeah, Game. The 26th, uh, we're going to talk about the Afghanistan War, the Forgotten War, with Don Bentley. Mm-hmm. And the saddest show on May 1st, this young girl, she's now in her 40s. She was sold into slavery. She lives in Mumbai, and she's going to talk about what she went through. So that's just some of what comes well, what's coming up. Yeah, she asked for the quite, interview. Those questions good. are going to be hard, but she, she's she got them, and she said she'll answer them. So in my opinion, in my past, whatever, I've asked an awful lot of questions of an awful lot of people and an awful lot of authors. I think the hardest thing is just to read the book and not do what other interviewers do. A lot of times I read book reviews and it's just the back cover that somebody copied yeah. or it's just the, the sides, whatever. So it it gets hard. Teachers need to actually... I wonder sometimes when you said that the teachers read the book to the children, I wonder yeah. if they read the book or they're just reading it along yeah. with them, which means yeah. that that's why they can't ask the right questions. 
So how do we how do we get teachers to read the book and ask more effective questioning? Well, friend, in my view, in my view, and this is, might sound a little iconoclastic, but in my view, beyond third grade, there's absolutely no reason for teachers to read books to children. Yeah. Uh, however, unless it's a play or a poem or poems, those are meant to be read aloud. Yeah. But mm-hmm. as uh, as my Literacy idol Edmund Burke Huey said in his 1898 mm-hmm. book, "There has to come a time when students should be reading silently, because when they mm-hmm. read silently, they can really concentrate on getting meaning and not do a lovely expression that he used, and not do simply a performance display, which is what was his phrase for oral reading." All right, and. Uh, and so, in my opinion, there's no reason for the teacher to be reading a novel to the class unless, of course, it's a special ed teacher with a one to eight, and she has eight kids who are in fifth grade and decoding on a second grade level that you really like them to read, um, whatever, a, uh, a Judy Bloom book. They're not going to be able to do it. They're not, or even a, uh, the Pig Man. Um, uh, or in fact, they just gave the effect of, of, of uh, gamma rays on Man of the Moon Marigolds to my other grandson, Angela's uh, um, mm. uh, Angela's cousin. But uh, it, so the only reason really for a teacher to read a book to uh, to youngsters, a novel to youngsters, is if she really feels that they they would have problems breaking the code themselves. And that and for the most part, youngsters beyond third grade don't have that much difficulty. Some do, and okay. And, and, and I think there's a better way to deal with that. Just simply have the youngster read the book at home and tell the parents if they come to words they don't know, just tell them. I mean, really, that, that, that's much better than reading the book uh, aloud to all of them. Um, so um, uh, I, I have no idea, and it seems to be becoming more and more popular. Uh, I th- mm. And this, I think, since from the pandemic, uh, where my, my one of my um, uh, relatives said, "Yeah, we we, we don't even uh, they're not even giving us the books anymore because they're afraid for us to touch them with that. Yeah, they might sure. not be sensitized or whatever. Yeah, there you go, there you go. And uh, but 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 again, um, I I really do think that there's too much. Uh, I'm I'm not anti." Reading aloud to children. In fact, that that that. In fact, sometimes that's an incredible uh, bonding experience, especially with younger children, when when parents lie down in bed, sit down in a comfy chair, and read aloud to read. I think that's wonderful. But beyond third grade, there's no reason for it. No reason at all. In fact, you, you what can happen and often does happen is students become convinced, right, uh, that. Reading is all about sounding good. I want to sound like my teacher. I want to be fluent. No, it, you, you might not be, but you really want to know what it says. You want to you want to get the meaning. So um, uh, I I hope I addressed the question you asked. I often wonder though because there are different levels in a class. When I taught the two sixth grade classes, my last two. Uh, yeah. They asked me questions. I asked them questions, but I knew they read the book. They had it memorized. I knew I had to be ready. 
But then when you're teaching a class that's not as prepared, in other words, I was teaching uh, two grades at a time. I got stuck until I got the reading position and became the reading specialist. I was teaching three, four, and five, four, five, and six, children with learning disabilities. And Mm -hmm. they read the book, and we went over it. And I would, but these people are not doing vocabulary development. They're not asking them, you know, like shorter amounts. I would never say to them, go home and read five chapters. I would say to them, go home and read one. And I would get, and I I was, I was miserable. I bought them the book so they could write in it. So I said, Mm -hmm. if you come to words that you don't know, underline, and we're going to talk about what they mean in context and vocabulary development so that you understand what the book was. They ate the books up. They literally loved them. Well, there was Judy yeah. Bloom, Beverly Clary. But, of course, there was the book that got me in trouble when I taught sixth grade because I didn't know you weren't allowed to do Huckleberry Finn. No, uh-huh. I mean, uh, yeah. It wasn't Huckleberry Finn. It was um, something else. And I, I said, um, I, said I, they, I wanted to do Huckleberry Finn. I wanted to do Tom Sawyer. And they said I could. They, they said I couldn't do that. I said because that's that's too whatever. I did anyway. I yeah. didn't care. Yeah. But um, to, to teachers, how do you prepare them? In other words, they have reading coaches and stuff. I wonder how many principals could get up and do a lesson in reading. I doubt it. Well, yeah. Again, friend, without casting aspersions, because I uh, again I have the utmost respect for for teachers and administrators and anyone in education. However. Just like lawyers and, and medical doctors, some are very good, some are okay, and some should be doing something else for a living, okay? But mm-hmm. in terms of answering your question, uh, I I was asked many years ago, probably 15, by the International Reading Association, which is now, as you know, the International Literacy Association, which is probably more more of a um, uh, more uh, – um, appropriate, uh, given that uh, it's literacy, it's not just reading, um, four language arts, right? Uh, but I was asked to be on the committee to review the professional preparation of reading professionals, of literacy mm. professionals. And we did this all on computer, and there. And I was looking at the, and I had not looked at that before, but they had things like, um, well, for elementary school teachers, um, Six credits in a minimum of six credits in the teaching of reading, and I went, huh? I actually went huh, to myself, and as I went through it, and they got to principles, perhaps three credits, specific credits, and some um, strands and other courses where they cover it. It was absolutely ridiculous. And for secondary teachers, English mm. teachers. Three credits, six credits. But my my point, friend, was um, in my view, principals, elementary school principals particularly, but also middle school and 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 uh, uh, high school uh, principals should have. And this is what I wrote in my recommendation: a minimum of eighteen credits in literacy and reading, a minimum of 18 credits. In fact, I would really prefer that to become an elementary school principal and my niece, Jill, who I'm going to her daughter's birthday party uh, at 3 o'clock today, uh, mm. she is a reading specialist, okay, uh, and Uncle George um, uh, was pleased to be able to uh, help a teeny bit with that when she worked through that, 
Then her next job after she did that, and she was a, she was a young woman. But her next job after that, the friendship was became a um, a um, elementary school principal, and she's doing that today in, in a, uh, a school in New Jersey. I won't forget the district, but it's inconsequential. Um, but the point is, as a former reading specialist, and now and for the past probably ten years, I really. A, uh, a, a school principal, she has an enormous advantage. She has an enormous mm-hmm. advantage when she observes her teachers. She has an enormous advantage when she um, uh, hires professional development people because she knows who's good and who's not good. And uh, again, wouldn't that be wonderful if our elementary principals, secondary principals had if not a, a master's in reading, close to it. I think that would help tremendously. Uh, well, the one thing that helped me was on? that my assistant principal was had a master's in reading. And yeah. Yeah, that made me tough. That made it tough because yeah. he, was, he was brilliant. I learned a lot of different ways to do vocabulary development from him. And then he would do something really rotten. He would tell me, you're the assistant principal today. I'm doing your reading groups. I go like, <laughs> you can't do that to me. What am I, I'm supposed to yell at the bad kids and get them. I, I was good at it. I learned how to be the dean. But there were days yeah. that Mike didn't feel like teaching, feel, feel like being the right. dean. The, the principal, the principal, he would come in my room and say, I'm going to do the lesson. And the kid, I would come back and I would say to my group, okay, what did he do? What did you learn? What effective strategies did you learn? Do I want to copy what he did? I would put them on the spot. They knew. Right, right. I said, exactly. and who's going to tell on who's about? You're much more fun. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, right, but right. you're right. The principal that I left before I retired, she could barely put her name on a paper without having somebody telling her how to spell it. Oh, and she knew nothing about the value of a reading program, and that's why I retired. I couldn't do it anymore. Not the kids, yeah. her. She said, yeah. oh, I need you to, to cover this class because of this. I said, as soon as I become a sub, I said, I'm the reading specialist, and basically I don't have to listen. So one one other question. The one thing I found when I taught sixth grade and even any grade is reciprocal questioning. I asked them questions. They asked me questions, and I had them ask each other questions. How, how effective yeah. a strategy is that? Because it worked pretty well, I thought. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful strategy, friend. It's an absolute wonderful strategy. Uh, number one, it teach, in, in order to formulate a question, think about it. Uh, of course, you don't have to think about it. You know this. But in order to formulate a question and for the students to ask you questions or to ask each other questions, they have to know the answers. And uh, yeah. there were 4,700 questions that teachers asked during the course of the day, they don't ask those questions because they want to know the answers. They know the answers. They, they mm-hmm. ask those questions. They want to see if they're, if they're assessing the students' understanding, right? So reciprocal mm-hmm. questioning is a wonderful way for the students to, number one, actually playing teacher, which is a good thing, and number two, mm-hmm. they are in the question, they're, they're in effect showing you that they understand that well enough they, they can turn it into a question. Something just a little quickly that you might find interesting, if I may, a little a little vignette. I love vignettes because they they reveal a lot. But I was asked to go into a um, social studies class, an average class. Um, some students who weren't exactly uh, 
academically oriented, and, and this was in, in Brentwood way back when, and I was asked to um, do a teaching reading in the content area. And I was thrilled because this teacher attended workshops with me, and he said, George, I want you to come in. So I went in, and I walked in, and, and he gave me a big smile. He said, I'll see you later. And he walked out. That that wasn't terribly helpful. You know, he was getting a bagel and coffee, and I was left with this kind of rude group of students who were kind of throwing their books and this and that. And finally, I just looked around, and I said, yo, yo, and two yo's, and they quieted down. And then I said, my name is Cavuto. I'm gonna. I'm here to teach you how to cheat on your social studies test. Well, friend, that got That's their cool. attention. Oh, okay. of course it was. And basically, what I did was I had them take out their social studies books. Show me the chapter you're on. We're in chapter four, Kabuto. There's always one or two or three or five, or maybe ten cooperative mm-hmm. students. We're, we're, okay, let's turn to that chapter. Okay, let's look at these bold-faced headings. Um, what's your name? Melissa. Melissa, what's that first uh, bold-faced heading? Um, the first constitutional convention. Okay, let's take that bold-faced heading, turn into who, what, where, when, why questions. And let's put those questions on the board. What was the first constitutional convention? Who attended the first constitutional convention? Where was the first constitutional convention? Huh? And we went down, and then we did that for each, and no, it, we did that for the first bold-faced heading. Then I, now, what, what kind of questions are these, friend? You both, we, you know, they're, they're literal questions. Then I said, all right, you know what? Now I want you to read, and then, oh, I said, no, 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 don't give me that moaning and groaning. All I want you to do is read the three paragraphs after that bold-faced heading. Oh, okay. And then answer the questions that we just developed. And that took them 10 minutes. And we went through it. They, uh, it was in Philadelphia in 1776. Why was it to drop a constitution? No, they piece of cake. So but how many bowl, people? Bowl. How many people would know how to how to do that? I know. I used to give a science yes. test, and I would tell them. I used to play tricks on them too. It was fun, especially since they were so smart. Um, they had to do a science chapter, whatever the principal wanted. Unfortunately, when I taught, the principal would say, you know, you have to follow the curriculum. Yeah, not really. Um, you have to ask the questions in the book. Not never happened. And I would tell them, okay, all I want you to do is go home and read the book. And then when they would come to school the next day, I'd go, take out your books. I'm giving you the questions. Let's see if you can find the answers and get 100. Right. This will, this will, this will let me know if you really read it. And, well, yeah. they always got A's. It was very disturbing. They always got A's. I mean, they, yeah, we, read yeah. Edgar, we read Edgar Allan Poe. And uh-huh. I, my, one of my questions to them was, what did you think of the ending, and how would you change it? If mm. you were that character, how would you feel? And they knew it. But we have about now, now three now minutes you're at the left. Level, you're at the applied level with that, friend, and if they're able to answer those, they're doing very well. But if I may very quickly wrap Go up, ahead. I know we're, we're coming to the end, but that when I went through those um, the bold face headings, and we turned them all into questions. Yeah. After we did two two bold face headings, and we did that, one of the more bold youngsters in the class said, "Kabuto, you told us you were going to cheat. How are you t- teaching us how to cheat? When are you going to teach us?" I said, "You see what we're <laughs> doing? Taking these bold face headings and turning them into questions." He said, "Yeah." I said, "That's exactly how Mr. Gilmore makes up his social studies test." If you That's too bad that teachers test, don't do that today. They don't. Well, 
friend, and the technique is called, I think you've heard of this, I'm sure, SQ3R. It's a, it's a reading study technique, survey. Mm-hmm. I remember. Reading, reviewed, recite, right, exactly. And uh, marvelous technique, and uh, it's such a great, great way to get the literal out of the way and to make sure that they understand at least at the literal level. Uh, I'm sorry to okay, what's our ne- What's our next one going to be? Um, well, when is it or what is it going to be? What would you like to talk about next time? So I have to start doing my research. It takes me a while. Well, you're going to have to give me a while to what I, what I do typically okay. between is see what we've covered and see what might make more sense uh, uh, the next time. Do you want me to put one in for June or do you want to put one in for August? Because I don't do anything in July. I take the month off. Yeah. Um, let's see. We're in April. Yeah, I think probably August would be best. Okay. How about August um, 8th? Is that all right at 10? Sure. Okay. I'll put it in there, in there just temporarily. Okay. That's good. Okay, and everybody. I will give it a, will give it a lot been... of thought and we'll come up with something interesting. Good, because my nephew's been listening. And he okay, does yeah. analytics and stuff, and he says, man, that is so cool. For him to listen, that's a big deal. Now I'm going to go help him with his car. But thank okay. you so much. Everybody have a great day. Have a great day at the birthday party, and bye. Thank you, friend.